This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. excited to be here tonight. Thank you for coming and thank you all for joining us and uh, coming to listen to the conversation. I'm of course intellectually and professionally excited to be talking to you. I've been waiting for quite some time but I'm also just personally and selfishly very excited to meet you and be in the same room. I've heard an exhausting amount about you. Okay, you make um, me feel really weird. Yeah, go on. <laughs> from friends and colleagues, um, a lot of people who have told me that your work has really inspired what they do in industry and government. Actually, you know, because I write about propaganda campaigns, so right. sometimes I get really, really evil people telling me that. So I, I met this guy who kind of does like information warfare in Ukraine. He's like, I read your book. And I was like, I realize how we mess up our adversary. I'm like, you know, I, I wrote the book to kind of deconstruct this stuff. He's like, yes, this is the way to manipulate people. <laughs> so what kind of friends do you have? What kind of friends do I have? <laughs> yeah. yeah, disinfo people. Yeah, people who look disinfo at people. The best parts of the internet all day long. Yeah, yeah, I know those people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, pleasure to meet you finally. Um, yeah, congratulations on the new book. It's fantastic. Um, and it has a really great cover. You know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but I, I don't think it can hurt. That's so interesting because the UK edition has a different cover. It has a unicorn on the cover and it's been a massive, <laughs> it's been a massive success in, in the UK, partly because of, of the cover. And it's gotten to a lot of sort of shop windows because the cover looks good. Um, while the American one is different and, and you're the first person to say the American cover is good because I think the British one is better. Well, fair enough. It is. A, it's a sleek volume. I think. Can we cut that from the podcast? Like, <laughs> we're being recorded, aren't we? I didn't say that. I said they're both equally great. Both <laughs> equally great. Also, the, the British one was edited in a much more stylish and clever way. <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, okay. uh, two for two, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think even as someone who thinks about these problems every day and you know, has thought about these problems from an academic standpoint or an NGO standpoint um, or an industry standpoint, kind of from more of a security angle, uh, there are certain people who talk about disinformation and talk about propaganda where, you know, no matter, no matter how many times I've heard them speak about it, I feel like I learned something else when I talk to them. Ben Nimmo is one of these people at the Atlantic Council, now at Graphica, where I used to work. Um, and you're one of these people. The new book really concisely distills a lot of the, um, you know, the importance of what's going on, the problems that are emanating from disinformation. Um, so I'm curious how you got your start. I'm curious how you got into this world. Uh, what drew you in and what made you start thinking about these problems? That's such a good question. I mean, um, when I was introduced today, I sounded vaguely responsible, sort of respectable and grown up. Um, but actually, I started after university when I started my career. I, I did one of the darkest, most demented and evil things that anyone can pro possibly do. I made reality shows. Um, and we all know the consequences of that for society. Um, and to make it even weirder, I worked on reality shows in Russia. I went to Russia right after university. I had Russian roots. I spoke Russian. Moscow was a lot of fun if you were 24. 
And um, <laughs> I ended up working in Russian TV in the entertainment industry. And I did terrible things like bring docu-soaps to Russia and bring stand-up comedy to Russia. Uh, I mean, in a junior role, I was part yeah. of companies that did this. Obviously, I was, I was a young, still young then. And, and reality shows. And, and, you know, it was, it was a fascinating time. It was a fascinating way of understanding a lot about the culture, actually. So one of the reality shows that the company I worked for produced in Russia was The Apprentice, which has obviously had some impact on American political life. So the Russian version was much better than the American version. They had a real businessman as the kind of, as the Donald Trump character who actually made real money. Um, not some sort of con artist. Um, really well produced, Western producers come over, they helped, the music was great. It was all perfectly made. And it completely flopped because that's not how you make money in Russia. You know, Russians didn't believe it. They were like, in Russia, you make money through, you know, by hiring the mafia and taking over companies, by uh, becoming a minister and embezzling money. You don't make <laughs> money by having a brilliant business mind. If you have a brilliant business mind, chances are you end up in the gulag. Like, you know, that's where Russian businessmen end up uh, because the government wants to take away their money. So that flopped. But like reality shows like Survivor, you know, where you take people, put them on an island and kind of torture them and see how they survive. The Russians loved that. They were like, oh, that speaks to our cultural heritage, the gulag, <laughs> suffering. We love this reality show. Um, so anyway, but uh, so I, I was making entertainment stuff in Russia, but because I was working in TV, I could see close up the emergence of a, of a distinctly new type of propaganda model and, and model of, of politics. Um, I mean, if Stalin was 80% violence and 20% propaganda, Putin is 80% propaganda and 20% violence. And the propaganda was fascinating and very, very disconcerting because it was working in a way that propaganda of the 20th century didn't operate. And there's like three or four main features that I try to describe in my first book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which was an attempt to capture the essence of this new way of manipulating people. And it says the most important thing was that it wasn't a propaganda that tried to prove anything and it didn't try to convince people of anything and it didn't try to make its lies sound and feel like facts, which is what propaganda has always done. It kind of said nothing is true. We don't know what's going on in the world. Everything's crazy conspiracies. Facts really don't matter. Seed lots of doubt and paranoia and fear and kind of in this context of unknowing, the reflex is, oh, you need Putin is a strong hand to guide you. That was already very new. Yeah, that was very, very different. Uh, it, was a, it was a kind of a propaganda where there was no clear idea of a utopia or a future that they were trying to prove. It was all based on these warped and slightly woolly nostalgias. And it was a propaganda where performance had become much more important than any kind of arguments and sense. And where kind of rational discourse had broken down and where words had stopped meaning anything. And it was a very strange feeling. I mean, it was... Officially, Russia was a democracy, it had parties, but the democracy wasn't really a democracy. It was completely kind of like artificial and the parties were manipulated from the Kremlin. So they would use the language of elections right. and debates, but they didn't mean anything. So words, democratic language lost its, its, its sense. There's an interesting, I mean, spoiler alert, but there's an interesting line near the, the end of the book yeah. where you quote a Russian poem that says words are dead, right? I'm surrounded by dead words. Yeah, surrounded by dead, yeah, that sense of the, that language has lost its, its, its power. And, um, and you had something called like the Liberal Democratic Party, which was neither liberal nor democratic. I mean, it had no meaning at all. Um, 
And so at the end of the book, I kind of, of my first book, I come back to the West, kind of going, I need to live in a society where words have meaning, where there's a rational political discourse, where politicians, and sure, they lie, but they try to make it sound as if what their lies are facts. They're trying to, they're paying respect to factuality. And then we have the revolutionary year of 2016. And I just have this incredible sense of deja vu where a lot of these phenomena that I saw in Russia are sprouting in Britain, in America, and in Europe, maybe to a lesser extent, but certainly they're present there as well. And the second bit was trying to understand what had happened. Why had the future arrived first in Russia? And was it happening all over the world? What are the deeper reasons behind it? And what do we do about it? Um, so that's how I got into it. So I moved away from TV into trying to understand media and I created a think tank at the London School of Economics where we research disinformation campaigns, but also experiment with what to do about them. Um, and, I, and I became serious, but it really started with me making The Apprentice or helping make things like The Apprentice in Russia. <laughs> great start. Um, that's a great transition for something I wanted to ask you about. Um, I think that, you know, of course, 2016 is a watershed year for people in the West thinking about these problems. Um, people in the field know that it's been going on probably since at least 2010 in terms of online disinformation and stuff like that. Um, there's an event that took place in 2015 that I'd be very curious to get your take on as someone who has uh, more intimate knowledge of Russian politics than I do. Uh, Boris Nemtsov, uh, as I understand it, uh, until 2015 was kind of the main opposition politician opposing Putin uh, and kind of this increasing autocratic tendency of Russian society. Um, he was due to lead a protest opposing Russia's involvement in the Ukraine in late February of 2015 and was shot around midnight, three blocks from the Kremlin. Uh, he died. No one's ever figured out who did it officially. The international community, of course, condemned this murder. But something really interesting happened after he was assassinated. Uh, fake accounts started saying the same thing about the murder online on Twitter specifically. Uh, there were bots popping up and saying things like, Boris Nemtsov's dead, what a tragedy. Russia had no reason to kill him. But you know what? Ukraine might have had a reason to kill him. Ukraine might have had some motives. I bet Ukraine did it. Ukraine did it. Um, so this was kind of one of the first disinformation campaigns that we saw in, in the West. And there were some really interesting people paying attention. There was a journalist, Alec Loon, a guy I went to college with who wrote up on this in The Guardian. There was a data scientist in the UK, Lawrence Alexander, who documented kind of more of the data side, the social network analysis of, of these bots who are spreading this message. Um, and what's interesting about this campaign is just one month later, Ludmila Savchuk, uh, an employee at the Troll Factory, the internet research agency, which is now infamous for interfering in the 2016 US presidential election, uh, she left the internet research agency, she left this troll factory, she leaked a handbook. The first page of that troll handbook says, uh, make these arguments about Boris Nemtsov, link to these articles, use these keywords, that's your assignment for the day. This is one of the very few cases where we have documented evidence that a state actor coordinated and implemented uh, a pretty insidious uh, and nefarious campaign to smear the death of someone. I'm curious what the significance of this is to you. What is this presage in the West? What is this kind of a seminal moment for you as well? It's a seminal moment for, for, for anyone because Boris Nemtsov was deemed untouchable. He was a former deputy prime minister. 
Um, and it had always been assumed that people like that, you know, the Kremlin might give them a tough time, but didn't murder them. And he was murdered right by a red square. It was very symbolic. And it was really kind of whoever did it or whoever let it happen was clearly making a very big statement. This was, you know, if before that, the Kremlin had been playing with being a pseudo-democracy, that was kind of a statement like, don't forget what we really do, you know? Um, so it was a massive message. Uh, and a real, really seminal moments in in the Putin in the Putin story. Um, also, Nemtsov was just like a genuinely decent and nice guy, and one of the few genuine Russian liberals. There aren't very many. Um, so yeah, Lyudmila's in my book. Uh, she wasn't working at the Troll Factory. She was a journalist who'd gone undercover to embed herself there. And it's really thanks to incredibly brave. Joan of Arc type people like her. So if you've met her, you'll know that she's a person who's, she's scared, but she breaks through that fear. I mean, she's just incredibly courageous. And you can imagine the, you know, I think the technical term is the amount of shit that's been poured on her in Russia since then. Um, so why is it important? I mean, she was working there in the Nemtsov murder. I mean, like there was people coming in saying, write this, link to these articles, spread these conspiracy theories. And again, it was all about conspiracy. It was like, put out so many versions of who might be behind this to just confuse the hell out of people, yeah? Why was this so important? It was important because the Kremlin and other authoritarian regimes in the past, in the 20th century, an event like this, they would have approached through censorship. They'd have tried to squeeze the information space. Um, and really since 2010, the Kremlin was one of the first kind of regimes to understand that won't work in the 20th century. It's very hard to squeeze the internet, but you can put out so much bullshit and flood the zone with so much information that weirdly speech becomes a form of censorship itself. Now that's incredibly hard for us to respond to because we've always had a logic inherited from the 20th century more than anything else really, that freedom of expression is a tool through which you fight the powerful. And here suddenly, the Kremlin was making the argument, and they make this argument, look, it's just people, you know, using their freedom of expression. You know, they're allowed to think these thoughts. They're not threatening anyone. It's not hate speech. It's not incitement to violence. They're just saying what they feel. And you go and prove that it's connected to the states because it's very hard to actually nail right. the connection to the Kremlin. Like, it's just concerned citizens. And even if it's a businessman who's sponsoring it, he's a concerned businessman. And that's what they say. And that's a really, really new kind of situation because what do you do when the bad guys have weaponized freedom of expression? And that's really made our response to it. Our, I mean, the forces of good. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the people who believe in genuine democratic debate, the information space should be used for a kind of genuine exchange of opinion. That puts us in a really hard position because the Kremlin's completely right. According to the logic of freedom of expression, Article 19 of the Human Rights Convention, disinformation is not a term. It's not a legal term. You can't police. You can't, you know, disinformation is not illegal. Uh, there's very few regulatory things you can do around this. So, so they've really snookered us. And I, I go around the world and I see this repeated over and over and over. You see previously censorious regimes not trying to do censorship or doing a lot less censorship and instead just overloading the zone. And Democrats don't know how to respond. I think that really distills this idea of information abundance is really interesting. Um, I want to ask you as well about Putin as I'm sure you've talked, <laughs> talked way too much about already. 
on this book tour. Um, one of the things that you highlight in the book that I think is really interesting is disinformation is only so much of the problem. Disinformation about disinformation is actually perhaps the bigger problem. What I mean by that is there's this ethos that is, don't squint so hard. There's this ethos that is- I'm really jet lagged, okay. <laughs> disinformation about disinformation. Okay, what do you mean? I'm glad we have our caffeine yeah, to keep yeah. us alive. Yeah, so basically this idea that it empowers people to believe there is no truth. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you read because it's all bullshit anyway. Yeah, look, so look, propagandists have always known about this. I mean, doubt as weaponizing doubt has been, has been done many times before, though by the tobacco industry, by the energy industry. So it's not as if Russia discovered this. But I think Russia, the Russian regime, made this kind of their main political ideology, which is anti-ideology, really. And it's very interesting why that's been allowed to flourish and why, why did politicians used to try to pretend that their lies were facts? And now, whether you're Putin or Trump, you don't pretend anymore. You celebrate the fact that you don't care. There's been some sort of very deep cultural shift. And that's really one of the main things I try to explore in the book. I mean, let's take an example. So the Soviets did disinformation campaigns very similar to the ones that we've seen done in America during 2016 elections. So the Soviets did it. For example, they have a very famous one they did uh, called Operation Infection, where they tried to do this kind of like disinformation campaign in 1980 that proved that, the, that proved that the CIA created AIDS as a weapon to attack the Afro-American population. This was a story that went very, very popular, you know, went all around the world. Lots and lots of newspapers started reprinting it. But they tried to, they really tried to make that lie seem very, very realistic. You know, they created these kind of fake scientists who put forward a theory around it. You know, they launched it in East Germany, then they carefully let it spread in the Indian subcontinent. They really tried to make their lies seem like the truth. And when Gorbachev was called out by Reagan on this in 87 or something, I think Reagan confronted him in one of their bilateral meetings, Gorbachev was appalled. Like, how dare you say that the great Soviet regime would lie, you know? They were ashamed about getting caught. Today, when Putin goes on international TV and says with a smirk, there are no Russian soldiers in Crimea, when everybody knows there are, and then a few months later gives awards to Russian soldiers for having annexed Crimea, he's not lying in the sense of trying to replace you know, one reality with another. He's saying, I don't, give a I don't care about facts. They don't matter to me. Trump seems very, very similar. He's just like, yeah, whatever. You know, he just makes stuff up. That makes stuff very hard for us because we were sort of, ha, here is the truth. We've caught right. you, you, you know, that Scooby-Doo moment. <laughs> and like, you know, and now they're like, we don't care. We don't care. So what's happened? How come it did matter in the 20th century? And how come it doesn't matter now? So in Russia, this was already emerging in the early 1990s with a politician called Vladimir Zhirinovsky. He was already doing this around 92, 93. I go and talk about him quite a lot in the book. He's a very proto-Trumpian figure, this kind of buffoon who makes mockery out of the very idea that truth exists. And why did it happen? So kind of my mini thesis is, in the 20th century, you had two competing ideologies, communism and democratic capitalism, that were rooted in ambitions about the future, enlightenment utopian projects that were meant to be rational. Communism was deeply perverse, but it was still meant to be a scientific Marxist theory of objective history. And it needed a language of factuality to prove that it was going somewhere, that it was attaining the utopian democratic capitalism, obviously based on enlightenment liberal ideas. 
And so while they're in competition with each other, there is a need for both to have evidence that they're achieving the future. Yeah. So I think facts are deeply tied to an idea of the future that you're trying to show that you're achieving. I mean, facts aren't very pleasant things. You know, facts tell you that, you know, in my case, you're a bit overweight or very overweight, whatever, um, that, that you're going to die. I mean, facts are not nice, yeah? But they're useful. If you're building a bridge, you don't have a post-truth discourse around building a bridge. Suddenly, even Trump is like, you know, really, really evidence-based. Oh, look, I'm building a bridge, and this is how I'll build it, because it'll fall down. But in political discourse, that disappeared. In Russia, that disappeared in 89, communism falls, 93, for many people, democratic capitalism collapses with chaotic and terrible reforms that leave people in a huge amount of misery. And so by the early 90s, kind of factuality has lost its value in Russian political discourse. And you have a new type of politician emerge. And in the West, this happened later, kind of a delayed reaction to a very similar crisis. Um, 2008 is a very good sort of moment, I think a very important one, the financial crisis, where a certain idea of progress, where we're going, a certain set of formulae that essentially, you know, put together the free markets and personal freedoms, that starts to whittle away for a lot of people. I think there are a lot of other moments. I don't think there's one cliff edge moment, but I think it kind of slowly dissipates. Not for everyone, but for enough people. And that allows the emergence of a Boris Johnson, a politician in Britain, who doesn't, who just doesn't care about facts. He's been thrown out from two newspapers for lying, and now he's prime minister. I mean, his appeal is not factuality. And obviously Donald Trump, and there's a sort of, we have to understand, because facts are, I think, deeply connected to the sense of our own mortality and limitations and the glumness of reality, there's an incredible release and joy in saying fuck off to facts. It's kind of a, you know, a big fat V sign to, to death in some very pretentious level. I'm getting a bit pretentious, let's go back a little bit. But, um, <laughs> It must be California. Um, It'll do that. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, so, uh, so that's their pleasure. I mean, it's the pleasure of Trump, the pleasure of Johnson, the pleasure of Putin. Right. It's his saying, I don't give a fuck about reality. I'm curious to ask you as well, do you, do you think Putin gets too much credit at the same time? There's a narrative part of Putin's rise that I think is very interesting. Everyone talks about the fact that Putin was, you know, in the KGB with the implication that he's this geopolitical mastermind who's pulling the strings in foreign affairs and domestically to attain more and more power. Mm. And I think that's a tenable argument to make. George Bush, the first one, uh, not W, was mm. the director of the CIA. Mm. That's never part of his narrative. We mm. don't talk about his, his genius as having been a spook uh, or as some sort of political acumen. Do you think Putin gets too much credit? So listen, in my first book, I don't use Putin's name at all, unless other people say it. I just call him the president, because I'm interested in Putin as a, a media creation and as the media, the media game that was created around him. Um, so in, in this book as well, I'm looking at Putin and Trump as manifestations of much deeper political and cultural processes. So I'm not really interested in, in these people. I think they're jerks. Um, and I really don't want to spend too much of my time thinking about how brilliant or not brilliant they are, but I am fascinated by what makes that mode of power possible. Right. Um, I don't, I, I've been, I was offered to write Putin biographies and I would rather like, you know, eat shit basically. I mean, I just really <laughs> just like, whatever, he's, he's okay. He's probably yeah. quite good at what he does. Fair enough. Um, 
uh, you know, whatever. Well, it's, on that note, there's mm-hmm. someone there's someone else you explore in the book, Gleb Pla- Pavlovsky, I believe. So yeah, is. so Gleb I find much more interesting. Right, than, and than I think Peter. that evolution is yeah. fascinating. So Gleb is. was one of the spin doctors who created the first Yeltsin campaign and the first Putin campaign. And I interview him in the book because essentially he was one of these people who had to operate in this kind of post-ideological, post-truthy flux of 1990s Russian politics. Um, and it's very interesting. Essentially, what he had to do, because he didn't have left and right anymore, yeah? He didn't have an idea of the future anymore. What he, he, the way he describes the process is that you had to take very, very different interest groups who have nothing in common. Um, secret service guys and academics, soldiers and businessmen, and unite them around a feeling. Instead of an idea, just a feeling. And the feeling that he united them around in 1999 to create the Putin, uh, Putin's election victory was the sense of the left behind. That's how he describes it. They, he found people who all felt they'd been left behind by the 1990s yeah, for very different reasons. And Putin was going to be their last chance to succeed. And in order to bundle them all together, because these people don't actually have much in common, you need a very vague idea like the people or the Putin majority was what he called it, to kind of stuff them all into. And that you can do that for one election, and then it falls apart again. And then I contrast that with the digital director of Vote Leave, that's the Brexit campaign in Britain, who essentially talks about the same thing during the Brexit campaign, taking incredibly different groups with very little in common and uniting them around a very vague feeling, take back control. And I think there's a lot of that in the Trump election as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it's fascinating to see how in the 1990s, Russian spin doctors are already anticipating the challenges and the processes that we see here now. And Pavlovsky talks about this very openly. He says, you know, you've reached the same stage that we reached in the 1990s. Um, that doesn't mean we're the same society. You know, we have different societies. We have courts and, you know, you know, some sort of uh, police that protects citizens, um, which are things that don't happen in Russia. I'm not saying the countries are the same, but I'm saying something deeper is changing in the sort of, in the political, cultural permafrost uh, beneath all our societies. Something else I'm curious about, curious about is... By the way, am I talking too fast? I keep on being talked by Americans that you talk too fast. Yeah? Do you want me to talk more like a caricature British person? Like, hello, I'm English. I'm a butler. <laughs> I've keep, like, Taxi Drive told me your English isn't like the English. Like, we've seen, like, Family Guy. And you're meant to talk like this. <laughs> if you could talk like Stewie for the rest of the yeah, podcast, I'd I'm personally like, be very satisfied. Yeah. I love Family Guy. It's the best. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. <laughs> How do you respond to an argument that's pushed by the Kremlin, but also by other you know, actors in the space, um, that Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free America, these are the same thing as RT and Sputnik, um, just with a Western twist. Oh, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, so, can I take this from a different moment? Because I actually think something disastrous is happening in the debate here. And I know I can see several people in this room who are deeply involved in the Russian meddling disinformation debate. And I'm very worried about some of the language that's used. Um, I understand why it's being used. I understand, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to police language, but there is a moment when the language we use to frame something then starts to, to dictate a cultural and a policy logic. Interference and meddling are really bad terms. They don't mean anything. Yeah, that is exactly the logic of the Kremlin. They say, there is no difference. We're interfering, you're interfering. Yeah, it's all just information across borders is interference. Yeah, that's very, very bad. Um, that leads to a logic, and we're already seeing the policy logic in the West, 
But the policy response to all this stuff becomes trying to take down disinformation and fake news and this kind of censorious logic, which is exactly what the Kremlin actually wants because it wants to legitimize censorship again. Yeah, it has a whole theory of internet sovereignty, which would allow, as do the Chinese, which would allow one to censor and make that okay. And that's actually their ultimate strategic aim in this, in, this, in this policy space. So when we start using language like interference and meddling, I understand why we use it. We're actually using their language. We have to find a, the, a language that describes what's wrong with what they do, but in a democratic framework. And what's wrong with what they do is not interference or meddling. You know, I'm very comfortable with the idea of information flowing across borders. What's wrong with what they do is the deceptive behavior of it. Yeah, the fact that the bots claim to be Tennessee Geo, ten GOP, but are actually sitting in Saint Petersburg. It's the deceptive bit which is the problem. Yeah, and the quality of the media as well. The fact that they use lies, but that's even less important because that you can respond to. You can't respond to respond to deceptive campaigns. And the regulatory direction we need to go in is not to talk about interference, but to talk about certain types of behavior online should become more transparent. That's asking for more information, not less information. And if they're not transparent, then we take them down. So what the tech companies are starting to call coordinated inauthentic behavior, yeah. Yeah, that's a good line. I like that one. <laughs> um, that's the way to go. But I think we need to go further than that. I think we need much more transparency about the way algorithms are designed. I think we do need to break open the black box of the tech companies. And I don't think it, it can't just be about Russian stuff. It can be, should be anyone who's doing this. When we adopt that language, what, one which demands more information than the Kremlin's on the back foot, because the last thing they want in their own countries is for all these troll farms that are largely aimed domestically in Russia. You know, the stuff in America was a scratch, yeah? It's largely aimed at, at Russians. Um, they don't want that revealed. They don't want it revealed how they bully their own tech companies into tweaking the algorithms to put RT first in Russia. So that's what they're scared of. So it's so important now that we don't play into their logic. And there's one word, especially, one term especially that I really don't like, which is this term information warfare, which I actually checked it out in the MIT tool that lets you track how, how words are used in, in Western media. And so, the use of that term shot up after 2016 because we were trying to understand what the Russians were doing. And so suddenly went up by like 300% in, in US media. You've got to understand information warfare in the Russian modeling of it is not just tactical campaigns and subversion, all this kind of stuff that we clearly need to monitor and, and defend ourselves against. It's a whole worldview, yeah? It's a way of explaining history, essentially. So it starts off being pushed by kind of cr slightly crazy academics connected to the special, to the secret services in the late 1990s. And they started to use it as a way to describe the failure of the Soviet Union, not in terms of ideas and human rights and economics, but actually it was information viruses planted by the West. <laughs> viruses like freedom of expression and perestroika and economic reforms. So it's a worldview where there are no ideas, where everything is manipulation, where you can't have democratic engagement because everything is just a way to fuck the other side, not to engage with it. And it's a whole kind of quasi-philosophy. Um, and it's been adopted now by the Kremlin as explaining everything that happens in the world. Yeah, Maidan in Ukraine, that's not the genuine, genuine desire for democracy 
and the battle against corruption. No, that's information warfare. Yeah? It's a way of explaining away the world where things have no values, where people have no agency. It's a deeply undemocratic way of looking at the world. And as we start to repeat it, and as we start to think that way as well, we slip into their framing. So we have to be very careful with language in that sense. Um, you know, George Lakoff is great about this. You know, when we adopt the language of the other side, right. we actually lose it. Uh, information doesn't work like bullets. Information doesn't work like, you know, here is a word and I've shot it at you. Ah, oh, I've been killed by the bot. That's not how information works. Information <laughs> works through agenda setting, getting people to talk about things and framing the arguments in a certain way that gets the results you want. And at the moment, we're almost doing the Kremlin's work for them. On the other hand, I don't want to be this kind of dick who says, oh, you use the word meddling, how dare you? Um, but, but I do think there is a worrying framing of this problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the paradoxes and strange parts of being someone who works on these problems all the time is that in certain conversations, it's assumed that I think that disinformation is the reason Trump won. And sometimes I actually have to be in a situation where I have to talk someone down and say, I think it was an influencing factor, but to say that this is why something happened. Is we don't have research that proves that causal link. Look, two floors below me at the London School of Economics is one of the world's, world's best media and communications departments. And there is a whole sub-discipline called media effects, which has been trying to measure, essentially for 70 years now, whether violent movies make people violent. And their answer is, mm, sometimes we don't really know. Um, right. Look, I'm not really sure you can even think about media effects that way. Oh, look, a bot came and it won the election. That's just not how shit works. I mean, I don't know. I'm very skeptical about that whole way of thinking about media. Um, but what is happening is the lack of transparency in these deceptive campaigns are clearly eating away at our sense of trust. For a democracy to function, the information space has to be a place where we exchange ideas with each other as equals. Yeah? And when everything's hidden and murky, trust disappears and democracy can't happen. That for me is clear. That's the problem. That needs to change. Um, so, so, I don't know. I think it's just an endless debate. I've been stuck in these endless uh, academic debates about whether the Russian campaign did anything. I trust Kathleen Hall Jameson. She's the yeah. great doyenne of this field. She says it, 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 it did influence it. That's good enough for me. That's still not really the issue. I mean, I can't argue with her because she's really scary. Can we cut that as well? <laughs> She kind of steamrolls you. In real time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Censoring myself. <laughs> I'm going to push you for an answer on a previous question about Voice of America, because I'm very curious what you think. Um, is there a qualitative difference between Voice of America and RT? Yeah, because they have editorial standards at Voice of America, really, for Europe. It's in their charter. Uh, that, that they will be objective, whatever, these kind of public service values. Objective, fair, and accurate. It's baked in. If they make a mistake, they apologize for it. They follow kind of journalistic uh, criteria, and RT don't. So that's the difference. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, it's really simple. Um, I'm also curious about one thing that I think is very strong in the book is you examine the role of media in different time frames. There's this juxtaposition of the value of... Fox don't, by the way. Fox. Don't That's... have journalistic standards? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible watching Fox if you know Russia. Yeah. Because Sean Hannity is just, wow, such... He would do so well in Russia. Um, <laughs> it's so similar. It's so similar. It's incredible. Um, and I, I don't know if they're learning from each other, but it's like they found... It's both... They've all found, you know, how to operate in this new environment. Right. So that is very similar to to, to Russian stuff. Yeah. Um, but that's not a, you know, that's not the U.S. government as such. Yeah. I'm curious about the role of media in your dad's life. I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the book. 
So, so the book's a family memoir, in case that wasn't clear from this conversation. <laughs> he, this, so you're you're born in the USSR, and what there's is a now song about that, Ukraine? Yeah, I yeah. know. Oh, Back in the USSR. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was actually watching. Uh, I've been on a Wayne's World kick recently, and uh, there was a Wayne's World sketch uh, after the USSR fell. That okay. was the top ten things. Uh, the top ten reasons why we're bummed that communism fell. I think number six was back in the USSR, the song by the Beatles cannot be sung anymore. <laughs> yeah. So to your point. Yeah. The 1990s were a really, really fun time. I missed them too. <laughs> that was our problem. You know, wow. Um, but anyway, so uh, your dad was detained by the KGB for uh, distributing Samizdat, forbidden literature. Uh, he's someone who loves to write who uh, eventually became forbidden literature in Russia, uh, and who, once you guys get to the UK, takes on a role in radio. And by the way that you frame it in the book, I think uh, conceives of radio as having a near messianic role <laughs> in the world. Um, I'm curious what his view is on the idea of information abundance. This is someone for whom information has played um, the role of a friend or a family member. You talk in the book about the fact that books are the only thing that didn't lie to your father at some time in the USSR. Uh, what does he think about yeah, so my shifting attitudes right now? Yeah, so my family story in the book is there to kind of sh show how the values that democratic, you know, people who, who you know, were ready to sacrifice their freedom for democracy fought for in the information space. So the battle against censorship, pluralism, all these things have kind of lost their intrinsic value. Um, so it's, what does he think of the idea of information abundance? Um, Is it utterly ridiculous to him? No, it's not utterly ridiculous to him. So, so in the book, he's always running ahead of, so in the book I kind of, I pitch the propagandist against the artist. Because I think propaganda is basically very, very crap art. And propagandists tend to be very frustrated artists. And in the way that propaganda gets into language and distorts reality and takes us away from reality, through the manipulation of words and images, the, uh, the artist does, does the opposite. He uses words and images to get us closer to ourselves. Uh, and in the book, my dad is constantly kind of changing his art in order to stay ahead of the propaganda, in order to find new ways to communicate reality. And that's kind of the symbolic role he, he plays in the book. Um, what is he, he, you know, it's not even about information, to be honest. Uh, he, like a lot of people of that generation, has a much firmer grip on what's going on. For him, it's the same people that he was fighting in the 20th century who have now put on a different set of clothes, but he, he recognizes them. In the case of Putin, it's literally the same sort of people that he was fighting. It's the sort of, you know, Putin was a, a mid-ranking KGB colonel, exactly the type who arrested my dad and his friends. But, but just across the world, he's like, oh, I know these people. It's the old people, they're just back and now they use different types of language. So for him, there's a sense of recognition and kind of he's like, oh, look, they've, they've learned new tricks. Um, but the underlying psychology is the same. In terms of information abundance, look, he was obsessed with the idea in the Cold War that radio was the space to bring together, to break through barriers, to break through censorship, but to create a kind of a cosmopolitan and a global, uh, I suppose, audio theater. You know, he wanted to combine the impossible, combine different literary traditions and different sounds into this kind of new 
sort of cosmopolitan, globalized uh, uh, sort of audio landscape. And in a world where freedom of movement was constricted and where there was censorship, radio was the space where you could create the idea of a different kind of a different kind of world, create a homeland essentially that didn't exist in the real world. And when I talk to him about it, he, he thinks the potential of doing that with the internet is still there. So at the moment, for example, we have all these protest movements in Hong Kong, in Moscow, in Belgrade, in Belisi. But it's, I don't know if you've noticed, unlike the protests of 1989 or, or the Arab Spring or the color revolutions, there isn't a sense that this is part of an inevitable historical process leading us to more democracy. Yeah? Right. There isn't that big story because that big story has disappeared. But I reckon if you go very, very deep, both through data mining and social media research and qualitative research and interviews, talking to all these different dem democratic movements, you would find what they have in common. And we would find again why democracy is important. And we'd be able to regenerate that narrative from below. And I think the potential of using kind of social media analysis, not for ill, the way the propagandists do, not to manipulate people, but to find that latent thing that we all have in common, I think that's possible. That's kind of what we try to do at the LSE in a very amateur way at the moment, but that's kind of our aim. How can we use tech for good? Um, how can we use it to build democratic discourse? And how can we use it to find the interconnections between different things in the world that we might not notice? And that's still very much what my dad was trying to do through radio, but now the potential for doing it is much greater. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I, I kind of made that up. Do you have any? <laughs> do you have any hypothesis about what it might be that's underlying all those democratic movements? I mean, I think that there is a tendency right now, uh, and I'm certainly guilty of this, to just perceive of the world as doom and gloom, and that these positive pro-democratic movements and protests that are sparking up here and there are sort of exceptions to the rule. Um, Armenia is a place that gives me a lot of hope. There was successful protests last year to depose their strongman prime minister who'd been... Well, let, let's, let's see what the bad guys are doing, what it has in common, what they have in common. Um, so instead of trying, going for kind of totalitarian control over ideology, um, regimes, autocratic and not so autocratic, do different things. They do, they have two things in common. I go around the world and I find this repeating over and over. One of them is conspiracy as a kind of a way, something that replaces ideology. So not conspiracy theories that buttress an ideology. Like the Nazis had conspiracy theories about Jews, but there was, you know, that conspiracy theory was meant to buttress, you know, their big theory. And the communists had conspiracy theorists about bourgeois, you know, fifth columnists. But again, that was to prove their theory of class war. Now it's kind of like conspiracy theory within conspiracy theory within conspiracy theory. I mean, Dmitry Kisilov, who's the Hannity of Russian TV, his catchphrase is a coincidence. I don't think so. And he just does these sort of ballet-like conspiracies where you're like, the sense that you're left with is, and obviously Trump does this, oh, we, we just don't know, you know, that kind of thing that he does. This point of this is to make you feel that you're in a world where you don't understand what's true and what's not, that you can never change because you can't understand it, and therefore you have no agency, and therefore you need a, a Putin or a Trump to guide you through it. So it's a very subtle way of undermining your sense that you can never change anything. It's very, very effective that way. So that's one thing they do. So they're undermining agency. Yeah? The second thing they do is instead of trying to control everything, they polarize, because they can't control all the media anymore. So what they do, even in Russia, is that they sharpen polarization and make sure you know, they have the greater numbers. And obviously, Trump does this all the time here. Uh, so it's polarization to the point where democratic discourse can't happen and it's undermining people's agency. And I think that's quite universal. 
So that's already things that we can start working with. How do we fight conspiracy theories? Not in terms of like trying to prove something. That's almost impossible if you've ever talked to conspiracy theorists. Like it's not <laughs> flat. The world is not flat. Look, I haven't fallen off. Oh, it's flat. And it doesn't work. Um, but if conspiracy theories, the political damage is, is the lack of agency, how do we give people the sense that they can change something? And how do we smooth polarization? How do we build dialogue across very polarized communities? Because that's what they fear. There's great research by Citizen Lab, who are the amazing, the best researchers, about the Russian people. internet in 2010. 2010, they're saying we're seeing a new form of controlling the internet, not built on censorship, but based on A, flooding it with nonsense, and B, building polarization between different groups, which was harder then, because it wasn't social media, it was the blogosphere, which was very, very different. But that's what the Kremlin was already, had already worked out. We have this new, we have people building links on the, on the internet, creating dynamics. How do we divide and conquer. Do you think polarization makes um, both wings, so to speak, of the media more uniform in their messaging? Is it easier to um, denounce or discredit more outlets simply because the, the atmosphere is polarized? I, I, I think it's worse than that. And I, 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 it certainly started with TV, but I think it's become worse with social media. The way, so look, this is my pet explanation for all of this. And, and it's my fault. So, when the reality, bear with me, when the reality <laughs> show started, when reality show started in Britain and in America, Big Brother, The Apprentice, we as TV producers had a real problem because instead of conflict, people started collaborating and working with each other. And that was really bad for ratings. And so we basically manipulated people into clashing with each other. We cast people who were freaks for them to have these explosive things, ratings went up, started rewarding bad behavior, polarizing behavior, conflict. It's not natural. We engineered that. And Trump was the master of it, yeah? When, this is my pet theory, when Mark Zuckerberg and all these geniuses, these great people, they're so important. <laughs> when these children start designing the internet, um, they're living in this culture of the reality show. And they designed the internet on the principles of the reality show to reward polarization, performative extremist behavior, you know, because that's what it rewards. The ad tech system then starts playing into this as well. Media then have to cover stories in a way that feature these polarizing politicians that it rewards polarization because that's how the ad tech system is built. And we're in this spiral that's rewarding polarization all the time, which I think started with a bunch of producers going, Ratings for Big Brother season one were bad. <laughs> um, and that's what's happened. So we did a project with Corriere della Sera. I mean, it's almost as if the system we've created or that these geniuses have created for us is summoning up politicians like Salvini, like Duterte, like Trump. You know, it's almost they're reacting to the demand that's being created by the way the internet has been designed. And TV was already moving in that direction. I don't think TV was virtuous. It was already rewarding this kind of behavior. But the internet has hardwired it. So that's a big problem. We did a project in Italy with Corriere della Sera, who are, it's like the New York Times of Italy. And in Italy, you have a very Trump-like politician called Salvini, who self-scandalizes, creates these, you know, purposefully says crazy things in order to generate content, to generate clicks, polarizes on purpose, largely around migration. And Corriere, just like the New York Times, play into it. They can't help it. They end up covering him and reinforcing him. And we work with them saying, we were kind of like, you do realize that migration in Italy has gone down by 80%, while the amount of stories you've done about it has doubled. 
because you're repeating Salvini all the time. You know? You're completely playing into his game. And they're like, we know, but he gets clicks. Stories about him do well. We're, we're, we're completely wedded to the ad tech system. We have to do this. And we worked with them on developing other metrics, not likes and shares. Um, could they tell from their content whether it was generating constructive conversation? Could they tell from their content whether it was generating trust? There are other metrics that we can come up with that will reward different types of behavior. So we can do it. It's doable. But you won't make money. <laughs> so either we break these companies. Okay, either we work with these companies in a cooperative and collaborative way with a huge regulatory stick hacking over them to start tweaking their algorithms to reward other types of behavior. Or we start competing by creating enough public service spirited social media content producers who can create a different type of content. But as long as the algorithms are geared towards bad stuff, towards a reality show logic, then it's hard to see how far we'll get. I'm all in for favor of regulation, but I know that's, in America, that's seen as socialist or something. <laughs> You're in a good city for that. Yeah? I think so. Yeah? Uh, Libertarianism is so the ideology of 12-year-olds. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have, I have little kids, too, you know, they're libertarians. Like, you don't need any rules, dad. <laughs> like, no, we're going to have regulation. <laughs> I don't know if signs of your psychology are peeking out or I'm imagining things, but I'm curious if you feel any sense of guilt or regret about your time in TV. It certainly seems to have informed you a lot. I think you learned a lot. Um, do I have a sense of guilt about my time in TV? But not because of that. I mean, I was, I, because I, they didn't, look, there's rumors in New York that the guy who kind of like was the showrunner for The Apprentice feels really guilty about it. I've tried to interview him. We've all tried to interview him. He doesn't talk about it, but apparently he feels terrible. I've met another guy, Mark Hirschhorn, who's a great reality TV producer who openly talks about his sense of guilt. They made millions on this. I was like a young person, you know, as an assistant producer or a serious producer. I wasn't, you know, I never became rich out of it. I kind of got out of the game. So I'm just curious they how do you feel guilty. It, yeah. I certainly left it because mm -hmm. I thought that I was using these incredibly powerful tools for utter bollocks. And, um, and, I, and I wasn't making money. So like, yeah. I, I kind of like, and I discovered writing and I realized that, that I actually wanted to write rather than make terrible TV shows. Well, so that gets to this point, you're in a bar with your friends, like, Peter, what have you been doing? And I'm like, I don't want to tell you because I've been making a film about a two-headed boy, which is really exploitative. Um, and it's really embarrassing. And like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm working for a charity. Like, oh my God, you just feel, you know, you just feel like a jerk. Right. Um, so your choice then is, do I make money out of this? Or do I go and become a not quite best-selling writer? And I did the latter. <laughs> what's, what's the thing below best-selling? O okay selling right great now. selling yeah not 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 the yeah like 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 yeah whatever i'm not best selling <laughs> uh, there's a similar phenomenon you talk about in the philippines in your book that i think is super interesting there's a an academic that did a bunch of research about essentially the economy and hierarchy of disinformation in the philippines uh which is really one of the main battlegrounds for political disinformation in the world i would say uh, and uh, Maria Reza, Times Person of the Year last year, once described the Philippines as being um, the same TV series as the United States, just a few seasons ahead. Basically, everything going on there happens here. Uh, you talk about talking to people who are at different points in this hierarchy, people who are either architecting the disinformation from the top 
or working at a very low level, typing messages or clicking on stuff, clicking likes. Uh, but they all have their own versions, their own narratives about why they're not responsible for what's going on at large in society. How do you feel about that? So that was one of the things I wanted, because in the book I interview lots of spin doctors and lots of people who work in this industry. Uh, and that was kind of a light motif. I really wanted to understand how they rationalize their own behavior. So a very common thing over and over is because they have their own strong narrative that they come, not always, but often from quite disadvantaged backgrounds and they've made it. That personal narrative of I've made it is the important narrative. And the world is as it is, you know, I have different clients, I'm good at what I do, but their main narrative is, is their own story. You know, I did it. Uh, and that's how they see what they do. So that's number one. Um, number two is, especially the people who do it at a low level, on an everyday level, they disassociate themselves from the dirtier parts of the work. So nobody at the tro Russian troll farm destroys themselves as a troll. They often use the passive tense. So some things were posted, some accounts were created, not I created the accounts. And they almost don't have a word for themselves. And in, in, in previous lives, I, I, I did a couple of documentaries about prostitution. I often found that with, with prostitutes as well, that they talk about themselves in the third person and they don't like calling themselves that. Not all, but, but a lot, especially younger kids. Um, and uh, so a lot of that as well, that kind of disassociation. The people who are at the top of it are amoral and are usually quite comfortable in saying that. So one of the people that I interview is the guy who created Cambridge Analytica, which is the company that claims to have won the election here. Bollocks. Bullshitters, don't believe a word they say. But he's the guy who created the company that created Cambridge Analytica. And he's obsessed with the idea of how do you do real behavioral change? And it's been his driving force since he was, a, since he was like in his 20s. And he spent 30 years trying to understand what is behavioral change? What is the science of it? He, don't, he doesn't think you can do it online. He does think you need to do the research inside communities with almost anthropological style research. Um, but he openly says, look, I wanted to find that out. I wanted to see how you can move people. Uh, rather predictably, his other big passion is composing music. You know, so he sees us as keys that he can play. I mean, there's this amorality around him and about virtually all the other people I met. They, they, they see us as toys. Um, they can be very charming. Uh, they're very playful. Um, they love to boast about what they do, which is also a problem because this, they, yeah, they like to claim stuff. And you do have to be very careful when you interview them because... They like to see themselves as demigods. In that sense, they are, as I keep on saying, grade, you know, B-grade artists. That's kind of how they see themselves, you know, with us as their canvas. Yeah, there's this hilarious tension with these people you interview in the book of, on one hand, they really want to brag about what they did, but they also probably should stay anonymous to stay in the business. Exactly. No, no, they have that a lot. I mean, it takes a bit of, yeah, no, no, that, that repeats over and over. Or they've left the business like Pavlovsky. He's now left the spin doctor business in Russia, so now he can confess. Um, one is, is there hope? Is there hope for the future? Is there a way back to a fact-oriented world? Or are we kind of just here now? So, no, no, no. So, so the, book, the book ends with, with things that we should do. I try to do it in a subtle way because I, I hate these how-to books. I, it's like, this is how we solve this. Um, but I think by diagnosing the roots of the problem, we can now think about what to do. Um, and I work in a very narrow field of like information policy and how do we rethink journalism in this era. 
Well, we've already talked about the regulatory response. It has to be about demanding more transparency that stays within a democratic logic, that makes a difference between a democratic internet and an authoritarian internet. Because at the moment, you know, there's very little difference between the internet here and Putin's internet. They're very similar. It's very hard to say we have a different information space. Certainly with Duterte's information space, you know, or, or Erdogan's. Um, so, so that's what has happened in the regulatory space. But regulation will own, all regulation could do is even out the information space to make it interpretable and to let forces that are interested in sustaining, uh, in sustaining deliberative democracy have a chance against, against the, the people who want to destroy it. So that's the regulatory part. The part about uh, what kind of media content we need, I think it's this, we need some sort of agency, it could be a new civil society movement whose job is to smooth polarization. So the work that we do at the LSE, we analyze different social media groups, different audiences who hate each other, find what they have in common through a mixture of polling and social media analysis, and then try to create content which generates a conversation between them. Yeah? It's experimental. I'm not saying we have all the answers, but someone has to do this at scale. Someone has to get up in the morning and do this massively. And so we have to think about how to fund that. So that's the kind of the thing to do uh, in terms of a new type of journalism. Um, and, and the third thing is what kind of conversation do we want to generate? If people don't care about facts, it's very hard to generate a conversation. So I do think facts are deeply connected to a future-orientated uh, discussion. And I think we have to be able to, we can generate that sort of discussion. So before I came here, I was watching the debates. Uh, were you watching them, the debates on ABC? Who did you think did well? Mm, yeah. Um, look at the way they're arranged. They're arranged in the reality show logic where let's say you, you know, if you, A, they're, you know, they're designed that way to clash people, but also look at the technicalities. If you name somebody and you attack them, they have 45 seconds to respond. If they name you, you have 45 seconds to respond. So conflict and that kind of really cheap conflict. And it was largely, who was it? It was, uh, uh, I can't remember, Kamala Harris was attacking Bernie. I mean, that's how you get more, more time. So they're playing into this. It's not debate. It's, it's just like WWF wrestling with words. <laughs> and Trump will always win because he comes from reality show land and that's all we did. So already the logic is based around that. There's a different way of doing this. There's a way of forcing them saying, let's say, look, here's a problem. Show me how you will work together to solve this policy problem. Show us. And then to chain people into a discourse where they have to talk about the future, where they have to use evidence. We can then track whether their promises work over time. We can do a different type of political journalism that generates a conversation where there's an idea of the future and when evidence becomes necessary. It's perfectly possible. So those are three things. The other response, and the response that I find most important is, is this idea of regenerating language. If the language of rights has been co-opted by the far right, if the language of democracy has been you know, ripped to shreds by the Putins of this world, then how do we find new language to express democratic ideals. And that's kind of more the role of art and artists and, and kind of the kind of experimental creative nonfiction that, that, that I'd like to think my, my book is in a small way attached to. Um, and how do we do that? So how do we find new ways of describing reality that, that make it feel vital again? And how do we use language that feels alive? Um, I'm going to pause there because I will, I'm on the edge of pretentiousness and I'm now going to walk back. Because I think there's a lot to learn from Russian conceptual art of the 1980s. I'll leave that hanging there. Fantastic. Speaking of uh, agenda setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> generating the conversation that I want. Well, I think I speak for everyone here. Thank you for being here tonight. It was awesome listening to you speak. Got a lot out of it.
So thanks. Um, yeah. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. 